return to your seats. We're running a little late, but our um, afternoon speaker, our afternoon speaker is Dr. Mark McGinnis. Mark is a professor of Old Testament at Baptist Bible Seminary. He He got his MABS from Dallas Theological Seminary. He got his THM from Baptist Bible Seminary in Old Testament as well as his PhD. So he is, he came highly recommended by Mike Stollard who used to head up the doctoral program there and fought by, uh, uh, Dave Roseland who's one of the students there in his doctoral program. And so we're very glad to, uh, to have him here, and his wife is the, I realize, is who I get emails from all the time for the dispensational hermeneutic study group, so it's interesting to tie those things together. Anyway, uh, Mark and I got a few minutes to chat earlier, and we both agree on one thing, and that is that, sadly and unfortunately, the Old Testament is ignored and not taught or understood well, and when we realize how much of the New Testament, it quotes the Old Testament and is built on the Old Testament, it is uh, very sad. We need to be teaching the whole counsel of God, and that is not doesn't mean just that which is directly related to the church age. And many of us are better at teaching through verse by verse through epistolary literature than narrative or poetry. And so I thought that since we don't have a lot of courses that read that as we don't have any courses at Schaefer Seminary that cover how to do good exposition of Scripture, that it would be good to get someone who loved the Old Testament and loved teaching students how to teach the Old Testament to help us work through a lot of these issues. So that is why we asked Mark to come, and it just makes the whole conference with Steve Gere here a very Old Testament-focused uh, conference. So uh, I'm going to ask Mark to please come up and to, we need to, wait a minute, you need to be mic'd up, buddy. I notice you have a soft voice. There's a lot of people here who have hearing aids. You need to o- overcome that defect. <laughs> I have I have people who regularly complain to me because the speaker drops you know, that's part of what you have to learn as a good speaker. Don't drop your words at the end of a sentence and lower your volume. If you have a congregation where most of the people are over 55, then almost all of them over 55 have some hearing deficit. And so if you can't speak all of your words at a loud enough volume, then you're just going to frustrate people and lose them. And uh, that's part of what makes a good speaker is learning how to modulate your voice appropriately. So we need to, um, you know, just be aware of that. I'm saying that to a lot of these guys because I get complaints about all the younger guys that they don't they don't understand that. So um, since I have my hearing aids on so that I can hear, <clears throat> there that gives you the application. Okay, Mark, you ready? You got a little. You, and you're, you're on. I'm on. Thanks so much, and it's a pleasure to be with you uh, this, this afternoon. It's always a joy to be able to open up 
the Old Testament. Just want to correct one thing in the introduction. I don't want to get confused. Is that he introduced me as the Old Testament professor, and I'm glad he didn't introduce me as the old professor because some <laughs> sometimes that's get confused. I don't prefer that introduction. As Robbie said, there is a problem in our churches today. Surveys estimate that around only eight percent of contemporary preaching on any given Sunday comes from the Old Testament. Eight percent. Gleason Archer asked this question, how can Christian pastors hope to feed their flock on a well-bound spiritual diet if they completely neglect the 39 books of the Old Testament on which Christ in the Old New Testament authors receive their own spiritual nourishment? Well, the short answer is they can't. But the reality is we do. Why? Scott Gibson observes an informal conversation in his book on preaching the Old Testament. He talked to pastors and he came up with these five reasons why pastors shy away from the Old Testament. Number one, Hebrew is harder than Greek. Kill me now. I am sorry, but Hebrew is much easier than Greek. Amen? amen. I want you signed up for Hebrew, everybody who said amen. <laughs> Number two, the Old Testament culture is foreign. Number three, the worst, the Old Testament is irrelevant. I appreciate that. Amen. <laughs> However, a book just came out by a pastor I will not mention who says we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. And it's a well-received book in Christian circles. It's about this big. And I use sticky notes to put in my book reviews when I'm writing them. I ran out of sticky notes where I disagreed <laughs> with this guy. Number four, why don't we preach the Old Testament? We like the New Testament better. Yes, Jesus is always the right answer. I understand that. But... And number five, maybe the saddest, we don't need the Old Testament since we have Christ. But we're growing up into the image of him who called us, right? And what made him, him? The Old Testament. But we really think we don't need it. Or we act like we don't need it. Now, if you were in class with me, the first thing I would have done today... I prefer not to do it because it's going to be taped forever and you'd probably throw me out is I would have brought my Bible and I would have tore out the Old Testament. Start every class, every semester that way. And then ask the class, what have you lost if you don't have the Old Testament? Now, everybody gasped me. You said, you do what? Yes, and I keep my job at the seminary. But it's to make the point is that's how we act. And we see it if only 8% of our preaching is from the Old Testament. And I don't mean alluding to the Old Testament. I mean opening the text up and staying in that text. And preaching that text. But we tend to always gravitate almost like we're leaning Tower of Pisa. We start in the Old Testament and we just fall into the new. 
Now, one reason I think pastors shy away from the Old Testament is because the Old Testament passages do not avail themselves to three points, three commands, and a poem. And it's mostly because of this thing called genre. You know, it's easy for us to preach the epistles. We look at our people and say, don't gossip. Oh, that's easy. Don't lie. That's easy to preach. And we do. But if I take you to Genesis 3, Genesis 4, and I give you the Cain and Abel story, what do we say? Don't, uh, don't kill your brother. Well, that'll preach, but that's not the point of the story. But that's easy for us. And we moralize the Old Testament. What I want to do is I want to look at telling his stories, the biblical narrative, because really God is telling us through stories and all of us like stories, right? You read books that are stories. Why? Because we like them. We identify with the characters. How many like fantasy? Lord of the Rings. I mean, why do you read about hobbits and elves? You folks are a little bit strange. But why do we get lost in the story? Because it tells a story. And we want to be part of that story. So for three sessions, we're going to go through narrative. Just one of the genres. Then the last three, which I think gets really mucked up, is poetry. Hallmark is in business today because us as pastors don't like poetry. Because we can't dare write our own poetry. So we have to pay $5 for a card now that has poetry in it. If we appreciated poetry more, Hallmark would be out of business. Because we could write our own poems. And your wives probably have some examples of your poetry when you were first married. Because after that, you got wise not to do that ever again. (laughs) Now, you could go to Hallmark and look through and just, oh, that sounds good. Let me take a picture of that with my phone now. But now that goes back to no lying and stealing, right? So we'll go through that. But let's jump into this by asking a question. What does that word mean? You don't know, do you? Well, that's the right answer. You don't know. Because you don't have the context to know. Well, maybe it is a closing of a letter. Okay, now we understand. What if it's in the opening of a letter? What if it's in a personal ad? Remember, for newspapers. What if it's on a sports page? Anybody know what this is on a sports page? Yeah, tennis. Golf too? Oh, Davis Love, okay. How about this? In a building. Oxford English Dictionary. Any one of a set of traverse beams supporting the spits in a spokehouse for curing herring. They're called love. And Oxford English Dictionary again, it's used in theology or prayer as love God. Interesting that it had a separate category. So what happens if we confuse genres? 
I love lobster. I love my wife. Is that going to be an issue? You understand. See, we get genre automatically in life. But when it happens in the Bible, it doesn't come naturally. Because we're used to the rules in life. I'm from the East. And I will confess that I like the New York Giant football team. I appreciate that. Thank you, brother. And all you Dallas people just went, mm. My dad and I are watching a game one day. I forget who we're playing. My mom is there, which she shouldn't have been in the living room, but for some reason my dad allowed her. And the announcer said, they have to kill the clock. The Giants have to kill the clock. And my dad and I are on the edge of our seats, waiting, watching. Yes, kill the clock. Don't do anything stupid with the ball. And my mom, in the midst of this silence, tension, goes, why do they have to kill the clock? What the clock ever do to them? First of all, you talk during the game. Don't talk. You can yell at the TV, but you can't talk during the game. My dad and I both looked at my mom and said, and then we went back. No, she never got an answer for it. See, she didn't understand the genre. See, genre is important. We gain grammatical knowledge when we understand the rules that govern a particular communicative act in a particular context. That's very, very important. This is where we get really our literal understanding. Literal genres are like language games. The interpreter's task is to determine which game is being played. Only then will the individual moves make sense. Now think about it. What happens if we are playing a basketball game? How about after the conference, we're going to have a pickup basketball game. And a bunch of guys are going to get together. We don't know each other. We're going to play basketball. What kind of rules are we going to use? Basketball rules. We all know it. Instinctively. We don't know it here. How about if we're going to play hockey? Well, we can bring football game rules into the hockey, right? Because you just end up knocking people over, I guess. But you can see where confusion comes because of not understanding genre. To invoke the notion of genre is to acknowledge a tactic agreement on how a text should be written, how it should be read. A text only communicates if the reader is able to follow the rules of literary game being played by the author. See, this is why we don't have to give up that this text is true. Why? The writer writes in such a way that he's presenting truth. I don't have to argue for the historicity of Job. Why? Job is true because the author wrote him as true, and that's how he wants us to understand it. But we're in this kind of mess that says we have to somehow defend the historicity. But it brings up a question, who determines genre? Genre creates a cooperative context and generic competence requires that one attend both to the universal rules that govern all discourse as well to the particular rules that govern particular literary forms. And this is very, very important. What rules are we playing by? How about if I tell you, some of you agreed, that you like Lord of the Rings? 
What if I were to say Lord of the Rings is true? Bilbo Baggins exists. What would you say to me? Yeah, Mark, you've been away too long from home. Why do you why do you say it's fantasy? Well, we all agree that it's fantasy. None of us are looking for a ring that makes us invisible. Well, maybe on Sunday morning after we preach that bomb of a message, we do look for <laughs> If I could be invisible now, this would be a great time. But we know it's not true. But if we come to Job, that is true. Because if Job's not true, then why does James say, we've heard of the patience of Job? Well, if Job is not true, then he might as well be Bilbo Baggins and anyone can take what God dished out to Job because it's not true. I mean, I can put up with pain if it's only on paper. It's when pain is in the skin, it's on the head and it's in the face. It's real. That's the reality. And this is what genre helps us with in understanding these issues. The author intends a particular set of generic rules and tends the readers to recognize those rules. So who determines genre? Well, it's the author. Here, what does this look like to you? It looks like a classified ad, right? Remember those things called newspapers? Wanted, good woman. Must be able to clean, cook, so dig worms and clean fish. Sent, must have boat. And on the bottom, send picture of boat. <laughs> now you laugh, why aren't you? Some of you saying, some of you single guys should be saying, that's a good ad. <laughs> I can run that on Twitter. But why are we laughing? Even though it's in the form of a classified, we recognize the genre and we laugh because the author decided it that way. But here, I won't read it, but the Lord spoke, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. Keep Go to verse 3, you shall not have other gods before me. What does that sound like? God saying, I'm saying this, you will not do that. Sounds like law to me, doesn't it? And it is law. He's the one that determined law. So how do we tell genre? Well, the form. <coughs> Excuse me. Structure. Poetic versus prose. And it's nice now that since the 1950s, our English texts do break up poetry and prose. It used to be before the 50s that some of our English Bibles ran Psalms and the poetry as paragraph forms. And that really did an injustice to the poetic structure, even in English, toward the Old Testament. Plus, then we look at context. What is the context saying? Function. How is the author intended this genre to function? And then what is the author's goal? So that's how we're going to look at this idea we call genre. But we come up with this question. Why different genres? I mean, think about it. It is somewhat frustrating to figure out what is this story about? And what was Moses' intent for writing this story if we're going to stay in Genesis? And some of us are saying, God, wouldn't it have been easier if you just gave us a list? Well, we know how that worked out. He gave 614 and it didn't work out well for the Jews. But somehow we think it'll be better. I just want to tell my people what you want us to do. 
Do we really? Do we want to make Christianity just a checklist? See, but all of us like stories. All of us like movies, right? Why do we like movies? We identify with the characters. And somehow we think if they can overcome, then we can overcome. In those movies where the good guy wins. Or superhero movies. What's the appeal of superhero movies? Besides all the crashes and the bangs. It's the good guy wins. And that someone who has power uses power for good. And all of us say, if I had the power, I would use it for good. See, we identify. And see, these stories touch our hearts. Stories and poems do more than inform our intellect. They also arouse our emotions, appeal to our will, and stimulate our imagination in ways that a modern systematic theology cannot. This is extremely important to understand. Because sometimes as pastors, we, we, don't, we react to the emotion. Well, I can't appeal to their emotions. That's funny because Paul in Romans says what? I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's an emotional word. And that motivates him to do what? To go to Rome. But somehow we don't want to appeal to the emotions. But really, you cannot separate the will and the emotions. We are one being. And we can't separate how we appeal. And there's nothing wrong with emotion. It stimulates our imaginations in a way that a modern systematic theology cannot do. But we must be careful, though, that we don't get past the point that the scripture, even though it is a genre, it's all Bible, it is a special genre. It is written by God. So even though I'm going to look at it as literature, know right up front, it's special. And the way it's special is because it had a divine author. It is written by God. God spoke, men wrote. So that becomes a, an issue. In Deuteronomy, if two men, a man and his old countrymen are struggling together and the wife of the one comes near to deliver his husband from the hand of the one who's striking him, puts out her hand and sees his genitals, then you should cut off her hand. You should not show pity. That's what you're going to preach on this Sunday, by the way. <laughs> and all of you said, why did I come to this session? <laughs> See, we can say, well, I don't know what to do with that. But you have a God for some reason that gave that command. And we have to own that. I don't have to defend it. I just have to say that's what my God says. But there are some that see this kind of verse. And what they're saying is if that verse is in the first part of the Bible, then instead of dealing with the way that it was intended to be with, the way the author intended it to be with, we'll just throw it out. And this is one reason why you don't preach the Old Testament. You rather preach Chronicles 1 to 8. And some of you are laughing, agree. Human authorship, divine revelation equals unique genre. You'll go through the checkout at your favorite grocery store and you'll see headlines, baby with two heads. Aliens come down. And you'll see people buy those papers and I always watch them saying, really? <laughs> and they be, some people believe that stuff. 
But we have a text that we open up and we talk about axe heads floating. The sun going backwards. People rising from the dead. But why do we believe that and don't believe the headlines on the magazine rack? Divine revelation. And I have no problem staying here and says, thus says the Lord. As a matter of faith. And it's interesting in the New Testament, doesn't he say, when the Son of Man comes, will he find what? Faith. And I think that's one of the elements that's slowly creeping out of our society and even Christian society today. How about this? John says, I should therefore say to you that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Well, you can say, I don't believe the Hobbit. It's a danger to say, I don't believe this. Because if you don't believe this, you end up in the fire just like Gollum did. But that fire is real. Because this is hell. See, that's the difference in genres. Now, scriptures many times tells us what the genres are. Psalm 73, 1, it's a psalm. Proverb 1, 1 tells us these are proverbs. The Song of Solomon says this is a song. So once they tell us that this is the genres, then we can come back and say, okay, what rules do we use for these different types of genres? But why narrative at all? I mean, why God couldn't just simply tell us? Well, the reason I would suggest is that narrative appeals to the emotion. 40% of the Bible is in narrative. Now, narrative doesn't give commands. Narrative tells stories. It shows. It doesn't tell. It shows. And the purpose of the biblical author is to persuade him to his position. Every author, when he writes, wants to move you to his or her position. In a text, the biblical writer wants to move you. Uriah Mitt suggests, Biblical literature sought to convince its audience, readers and listeners, and the device of the stories were employed. Much depended on the power of the stories because the good story is irresistibly persuasive. See, he wants to move you from your pleasant present place to a new place. And think about who he's writing to in the Old Testament. Jews. Who sometime God said they were what? Stiff-necked. Now you tell a stiff-necked person, I want you, you must do X, Y, and Z. And what do they become? More stiff-necked. But tell them a story. Oh, didn't Jesus use that same technique to the Pharisees? He told stories and all of a sudden at the end of the story they said, wait a minute, that's about me. <laughs> Jesus didn't say, you're the man. It says, they told stories. David, after his win Bathsheba, the prophet comes and what does he say? Hey, king, you're wrong and you're going to hell, buddy. No, well, that's what he was a believer. But hey, you're going to suffer God's discipline. Well, first of all, you don't do that to a king, right? What does he do? Tells a story. And he tells a story. Why? To motivate, motivate behavior. But see, I think so many times we look at the Old Testament narrative and we lose the freshness because we think we know the story. 
Now, if we take Genesis 3, if you have your Bibles, open Genesis 3. We'll stay there for a little bit. That's in the Old Testament. Thank you. If you're sitting next to somebody who's that side of the Bible is not dirty, please help them find it. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you should not eat from any tree of the garden? What? Now, what reader for the first time is reading that says, What just happened? A snake said, What? And before you can get it out of your mouth... Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, and everyone who's reading this for the first time who is engaged with the reader, with the author, should say, Eve, shut up. Don't answer the snake. This is not going to work out good for you. But what do we do? And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the tree of the gardens we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the midst. That's the way we come across it. Instead of saying, really, what is the dynamic that's taken place here? See, as a reader, Moses draws us into the story and encourages us to respond in which way the characters should have responded. So when we hear the snake today, what do we think? Oh, yeah, you know what? I think I read about this in the Old Testament. Bad things happen when you listen to snakes. That's what Moses is trying to communicate. That when you listen to the devil, bad things do happen. The author wants his view to be accepted. Reichen says it this way. The story has been consciously assembled by the author for a calculated effect on the audience. And as pastors and as teachers, that's what you have to determine. What is the effect? What does the author want for this section of the text, or in narrative, what they call is pericope. One scholar says, the interpreters are therefore called to discern not only what the author was saying, but also what he was doing with what he was saying in any given pericope. History is never therefore history, but history for. The writers of the biblical narratives had an ideologically and theological purposes, primarily that of changing the lives of his readers. Thus, informing information was not the only goal of these authors. Transformation was the essential aim of their writing. When you pick up this text, the whole Old Testament is theological. It has a theological purpose that wants to move us from A to B. Please don't put it as this is information. You know, Genesis 1 and 2 tells us about God, how he created the earth, is true. It's true information, but it wasn't given to us as information. It was meant to move us, and we'll get there in a few minutes. Okay, let's look at this thing we call characteristics of the narrative. And if you note, the biblical narratives on a whole are very brief. Think of Jonah, four chapters, very brief. Book of Ruth, very brief. So the author doesn't give a lot of details, but the details he gives are very important. I mean, just watch. The next time you watch your favorite movie, go back and watch your movie. Movies are functioning the same way as biblical narratives. 
They only have an hour and 45 minutes or so to tell their story. Generally speaking, everything they put into a movie is there on purpose. So I was doing this this week. We were watching a movie. It was an action movie. And as they panned across this warehouse, there was a chain on the wall. And then the main character was in there. And I told my wife, he's going to grab that chain. She says, how do you know? I said, I know it. Two minutes later, pulls out his 9mm, grabs the chain. I said, see, told you. Why? Because directors don't waste space. And they highlight it. And so does the biblical authors do the same thing. The storytellers control what we see and don't see, how we see it and when we see it. Now, this is very important. Not you pastors, those other pastors that didn't come to this conference, okay? (laughs) Jonah chapter 1. The prophet runs away from God. And right away, what what question do we want to answer for our audience? Why he ran. And what do we do? We jump to chapter 4. Why didn't the author of Jonah put chapter 4 verse 1 in chapter 1 verse 2? You just did. He didn't want it there. It wasn't his point. See, the storyteller tells us, and he tells us when he wants us to know things. And it's important that we maintain that. All right, so let's look at scene. Scene is one of the most important things in a narrative. And be able to delineate the beginning and ending of a scene. So if we move to something like Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, what's important of the scene? The scene is a what? Garden. Yes. Now he asks the question, why does he tell us it's a garden? And why does he put so much background information that this garden is what? Perfect. Well, that's very important. How can two people and a perfect environment with God walking with them each day listen to a snake and blow it? Well, you can't, can't blame environment, can we? <laughs> and that's exactly it. Narrowing down the choices you can't blame. So if we were looking at Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we could break it down into scenes. And I'm saying if we can teach our people this, it's going to invigorate their Bible study and invigorate our preaching because we can tell a story, not just break it into points, but tell the story along the way. The next is plot. And plot is unique. It's really just beginning, middle, and end. Some suggest the beginning, middle, end is sequencing. Reichen develops it in more detail. Exposition, background information, inciting moment, inciting age, agent, and so on. But most of us just really understand it as beginning, middle, and end. How does it progress? And the hard part when it comes to preaching or teaching is know when the plot begins and when the plot ends. Because it knows we have stories connected to stories connected to stories that make up one book. This becomes important in Chronicles and Kings. Because we tend to slice and dice those animals up. And I don't think we keep the plot together. Really it starts with when this king started the rule it should go to his entire reign. That's the whole plot. The Ahab story. 
is extremely important to understand the whole plot and what happens at the end of his life. Here's the worst king known to Israel. And we tend to just preach him as the worst king. But really, I believe he's got bad press. Why? What does he do at the end of his life? See, but if we never get there, if we don't keep the whole plot together, we miss the point of the author telling us the story of Ahab in Kings and recognizing the audience that story is told to. Next, I know I said it a number of times, but conflict is one of the most important. The conflict is the problem. What's happening? And it's interesting, in the Old Testament narrative, the conflict is just usually between two people. But it could also be between the person and God. So you can have character versus another character, character versus God. Job is an example of that. Character against nature, character against himself. Now, we don't see character against nature, I believe, in the Old Testament. There's always some else involved. Now, what in the Old Testament, when it comes to conflict, generally, what will the conflict always be about? Listening to God. Always look for that. It's always about, will you listen to God? Point of view. What is the point of view? Take, for instance, Genesis chapter 3. We've been looking at that. It's interesting that the, third, the, the point of view is omniscient third-person narrator. He knows everything. Matter of fact, it opens in chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. How did he know that? I mean, we all want to know how he knew it. But he knows everything. He even tells us what people are thinking. And they heard the sound of God walking in the garden and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. You get the feeling that the narrator is right here over everything telling us what they're doing, what they're thinking. And he's painting this picture for us because he's trying to communicate a point. Now that goes with this. One must carefully note that the point of view adopted by the narrator is the one that the God would take and therefore the one that we must give credence to as well. Scholars say the narrator in the Old Testament is always truthful. We can always trust him. And this is going to become important when we get to my last session when we talk about poetry. Because the narrator's voice comes in into one book of the Bible. And it's important that we recognize that he's standing in for God. Okay, characterizations. You know, who are the characters? Well, if we look at Genesis 3, who are the characters? You got who? You got Adam, Eve, and the snake. Good. We're missing one. God. Yes. And what kind of characters are they? Well, scholars tell us you can have a round character, which is a full character where you know enough about them. You know more than just one characteristics. Take, for example, Amalek in Ruth chapter 1, Chahalon. They're called flat characters. Why? 
What do they have to do in Ruth chapter 1? Die. That's all they have to do. They're on the scene and they die. That's not very round or full character. Tell me about yourself. Amalek, we know a little bit. Maybe my God is king. We know that. But he leaves the land. Huh, how does that work? But really, all he does is move the story by dying. But God, Adam and Eve are full. Now, the snake might be flat. In a sense, we only know one characteristic about him. And scripture tells us he's crafty. See, round characters display a wide range of emotions and character traits. Samson, Saul, David, Solomon. And I would suggest that these full characters, these round characters, they undertake an experiment in living. And walking with God or not walking with God. So when you read the text, what you're saying is this character, he's been told something by God. Now, what will he do with it? And you really just put in the situations where will he believe or will he not believe God? Setting. What is the setting? We already talked about, we knew the scenes, but also with the scenes is the setting. And in Genesis 3, we see it's a garden paradise. The couple has no need of anything. And they still blow it. But this setting is going to become important too as we move into poetry because this garden setting, this almost perfect place, or it is perfect in Genesis 1 and 2, this garden comes back in the Song of Songs as the setting that undergirds that entire song. And then isn't it interesting that this garden motif plays out again in Revelation 22? Almost like God has brought the story full circle. There's your whole Bible theology for you. And you can tell it based on the trees. Tree of knowledge, tree of life, right? And what tree comes back in the garden? Tree of life. The way it was supposed to be from the beginning. That's why I call these narrative his story. He's telling us his story, but in reality, all of us are part of his story, living out the part that he gives us to play in his story. It's just that we're not getting written down in the book. Not this book, but we are written down in the other book, the book of life. That we still have to deal with God and his word dialogue notice what is said and what is not said now genesis 3 is fascinating why didn't god simply just continue the narration why does he has to tell us you know what the snake exactly said why did he tell us exactly what the woman said well i think those are extremely significant dialogues and the reason he tells us these dialogues is because you know exactly what the woman said and all of us that are reading the text say you got it wrong woman well at least we should as readers if we're paying attention but once we say no the character is wrong then what happens we are agreeing with the narrator and we're saying oh god said this she got it didn't get it quite right Maybe I need to be careful I get the word of God right. 
now the story becomes real personal. Because God has spoken to us, right? Do we ever twist it? No, not us. Those other people. I'm sorry. Did I just start preaching? I'm sorry. You know, put together this idea of, here, structural level. You know, how do the stories stay together with one another? And I would suggest Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Let me put it this way. I would think Genesis 1, even though it's talking about creation, it's talking about creation for a reason. It's showing you the power of God's word to create. And when we see this power of God's word to create, what is the evaluation by God every time he creates by the power of his word? It is what? It is good. There's no mistaking, right? When God speaks, good things happen, right? Yes. Genesis 2. You have this power of God to provide for man. We see him speaking, then we see this power. And then we have Genesis 3. How's that connected? Man's response to God's word and God's provision. Don't slice and dice these chapters. They're all connected to Genesis 1 where we see the power of God's word. And this is why Genesis 3 is so sad. Because Adam and Eve heard the story. They've seen God's provision. They are better than anyone would say, hey, we're here. We weren't here a little while ago. How do we get here? Well, God created this by his word. God must have told them. Oh, his word's important. Yeah, it is. We should follow it. Yeah. We got one command. Yeah, that's easy. Just don't eat of that tree. Then someone comes by and says, God really say it? Well, yeah, let me think about that. <laughs> really? And it all centers around God's word. And I would suggest the rest of the Bible really just plays this out. How do people respond to God's word? Then we come to style. What are the rhetorical devices that the author uses to communicate? So, for instance, style in Genesis 1, we see the rhetorical device is repetition. And this is one of the major ones that the Old Testament writers use was repetition. And that makes sense because they didn't carry around their old copy of the text. They had to hear the word. And if guys were gathering, say, at the city gates, they had to take that word after they heard it from the prophet and bring it home to the family. Repetition helped them remember it. And they came home and they were able to share it with their family. And one thing that we hear repeated in Genesis chapter 1 over and over again, it is good, it is good, it is good. And when we get to chapter 2 and God looks at Adam and says, hey, I'm going to find a mate for you. What does God say there? It's not good. We have to stop there and say, well, wait a minute. How do we go from good, 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 good to not good? Well, the author wants us to stop. He wants us to hesitate and say, what's going on here? And then how will God solve the issue? So we need to understand rhetorical devices. And I know I'm taking you back to sixth grade literature. And most of you are glad you never had to go back to sixth grade literature. But we have to understand irony, rhetorical questions, simile, metaphors. Because that's how the author created 
his story to persuade his audience of his point of view. Remember, the story has been consciously assembled by the author for a calculated effect on the audience. That's what he's trying to do. So if we look at Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we can say, what is God doing here? One of the most important questions we can ask, what purpose is the author trying to achieve by including this narrative or these details in the narrative? What effect is the author trying to achieve? Stay away from the question, why? You know, why the author do this? We don't know the why. We can ask, what was his purpose? I mean, John tells us in his gospel, right? What was his purpose in writing? That you may believe. It's clear. And he centers that, that you may believe, around what? Seven signs. So you have to keep that together when you're preaching because it tells one story. The same thing is true in the Old Testament is how do these stories come together and what are their points that bring them together to tell this one story. So I lay this down as the foundation for what we're going to talk about because we're going to move into the next time I speak, we'll move into the narratives themselves and we're going to go back here and we're going to look at each one and we're going to put names and places specifically so you can see how this plays out in each different narrative that we'll look at. And we'll look at a few. So if you're ready, I'll take some questions or comments. I thank you. Kind of a comment in a way. And in Africa, the... Uh, a lot of preaching mostly is done out of the Old Testament, very little out of the New. The problem is they don't have any theology, and so they, they tell the story, and sometimes they add a lot to it, and then they come up with some of the most absurd applications you've ever heard. And uh, so it's kind of interesting that my work in Africa with pastors has actually been to kind of force them out of the New Testament into the New because I want them to teach the... Um, uh, uh, the epistles and the doctrine and look at it that way and then hopefully be able to take that back to the Old Testament. Right. And that's an excellent point. I've heard that before that in Africa they appreciate story more. Matter of fact, one article I read said that some Africans say, I want to know who Jesus' grandfather is. Oh, yeah. They want to see the lineage. And stories connect with them. But And you make up a great point and I don't think it just happens in Africa we do disservice to the text in a number of ways when it comes to narrative. I mean, I just had it happened this weekend when I was doing some grading and someone said, Ruth is a love story. Now, I don't want to change any of your messages for this Sunday if you're in Ruth, okay? Please don't misunderstand me. Ruth is not about a love story between Boaz and Ruth. And it's not even, and I'll go on record saying it, it's not even about redemption. That's not why he put those stories together, those scenes together. This is a story about why is it that a foreigner has more faith than a Jew? If you don't watch how those characters interact, you miss the point of Ruth. 
But just like we can do a lot. It's hard to mess up epistles. Thou shalt not. We can't mess that up. But narrative. And I'll show you on our last session what they do to the song of songs. That has been messed up royally. Jesus has been in more places than he ever intended to be. And that's just one of the places. Oh. Other questions? Yes. Hi. Uh, well, I'm teaching through Genesis right now, and I've been really appalled at how many of the really great, respected commentators teach it like it's Aesop's fables. So I so much appreciate your comments that we're not to go through just moralizing the Old Testament. It's That's really powerful, and I appreciate it. Um, my question, though, is, can you help clarify in my mind the distinction between scene and setting? Those get a little muddy in my brain. Right. Scene is, so if we're going to say Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I think you have to keep those together as a pericope. So the scene would be, say, the chapter there might be pretty good. Chapter 1 is one scene. Chapter 2 is another scene. Chapter 3 is another scene. The setting is what's happening in the physical environment within that scene. So in chapter 1, we have... We go from nothing to an earth. Chapter 2, we narrow that down more to the people on that earth. And then 3, what happens within that setting. You're right, that goes back and forth. I probably wasn't clear on that. But thank you for your first comment because we have to understand guys that we used to respect, Longman, Walkie, Walton, all of them have moved away from a literal understanding of Genesis 1 and 2. Adam and Eve are not literal people anymore to any of them. And Walkie blames us as dispensationalists because of that. And he also blames us for 9-11 in his Old Testament theology book. And he says, and Longman and Walkie both say it, that if we don't move away from a contextual, literal reading of Genesis 1 and 2 we would be considered a cult. See, folks, but I don't want to go the other way and say we have to defend the text because he, the writer of Hebrews says it. We believe the world that God was created, and why do we believe it? By faith. I mean, if there was not a scrap of evidence, if there wasn't one rock, I would still believe that God created the world. Why? He says it. And that's all the evidence we need. And I don't know why scholars are moving away. I tend to think maybe it's because these are guys that play in both play, you know, playgrounds, the evangelical one and the Duke and Harvard one. And if you're playing in this sandbox and you say, yeah, I believe in a literal understanding of Genesis, they're going to look at you and go, ha! You know, they'll re we have to read their dissertations, but they won't read David's because they know where he graduated from. So there is a change, and you as pastors are the first line. That's why I appreciate you being here so much. Hold the line when it comes to faithfully understanding and preaching the Old Testament. Any other questions? Uh, in the back? Yes, how do we avoid uh, genre-dependent exegesis? Ryrie mentioned that concern in his Dispensationalism book. We, 
we have to be understanding that genre does not determine meaning, is what he was suggesting. But genre helps us understand the rules. So, for instance, we're looking at narrative. When we get into poetry, we're going to use a lot more rhetorical devices to understand the message. I'm not saying the, mess, the genre determines message, and that's what Ryrie was saying. What I'm saying is these devices help us understand. All right, let's take, for instance, um, I am the lily of the valley, song of songs. Is that Jesus? Well, you have to know the context. And if we don't understand the context, then it could mean anything. So I think that's where, I link. that's where Ryrie was going. And I would suggest I wrote a paper on the last Council of Dispensation of Hermeneutics talking about Ryrie's point about literal interpretation. And what I would suggest is that we need to change the term from literal interpretation to contextual interpretation. Because I think there's some misunderstanding. I th- even Ryrie did not like the term literal interpretation. But that was the best he had at the moment. But I think contextual interpretation is exactly what we do. And it takes in this idea of genre even without even using the term. One of the uh, questions that I might uh, mention, for a lot of us as we work our way through passages in the Old Testament, there are some uh, passages that lend themselves very nicely uh, through the narrative to teach, Numbers 13, 14. Uh, But when you break into Numbers 15 and you're back into some of the uh, details of Mosaic law, then you're you're struggling again to try to determine. All right, how do I make this real to the congregation in life today? That's a that's a question. You're just making a comment. <laughs> no, you're right. I understand. I don't. I preached through numbers in my church. I think there was 23 messages I did there. But let me use something that's even more difficult. Chronicles one through eight. Who wants to preach that Sunday? You go back to the Deuteronomy passage. Easier. And you know Chronicles 1 through 8 is what? The genealogy. Adam, then so on. And I read chapter 1 to my church. And when I'm two-thirds of the way through it, they're saying, what in the world is he doing? Can we get a new guy? You could just see the eyes. But if you know the author's intent... For those chapters, it's critically important. And what I did was, I had a slideshow. This is before PowerPoint. I had a slideshow of all my kids. I said, let me tell you my kids, show you my kids. Now they're saying he's really lost it. (laughs) Why? What was happening with the audience of Chronicles? Where were they? Actually, they were back in the land. Probably they were back in the land. Kings was probably in exile. I would suggest that Chronicles is back in the land. But what did they come back to? Broken down temple, broken down land, wondering if God ever had a place for them again as people. And what does God do? He takes them back from the very beginning and say, don't worry, folks. Let me show you where you fit in. All these people that you look back and revered, you're part of. And if you're coming from exile and you're coming back into a land that has no physical remnants of what it used to be like under the golden age of David and Solomon, 
and you see this book, what would you say? Wow, we are still his people. Isn't this great? And that's what Genesis, that's what Chronicles 1 through 8 is meant to do. And if you understand what the author's intent was and recognize he wasn't wasting ink putting all those names down. And he wasn't just giving us information about their background. Like, oh yeah, this is just information. No, it's theological. It's meant to move them. This is who you are. Don't ever forget it. Do you think our people go through the same thing? There are times that they do things that are so bad, they think they're messed up, and they don't think they're part of the family of God anymore. Anybody's pastor, you've talked to people like this. And say, look at Israel. They become the, exe- the poster boy for mess up. And what does God say? You are still my people because I redeemed you and I don't lose anybody. I think if we understand the author's intent, we can preach Chronicles. I, um, I have one question. Sure. Um, I hear often that many pastors, uh, like in these comments, they get frustrated with commentaries. You know, some they like, some don't. And, you know, you pick and choose, you know. And one basic question is, if they're so frustrated, you know, looking for this understanding on the, let's say, Genesis, right? And they're looking a variety of commentaries, you know, their opinions. Well, why... Uh, why do they dwell trying to find what they're looking for where they could automatically have the first access to God and the um, empowerment of the Holy Spirit revealing the what God wants them to say instead of just looking for the right person to give them um, the message they want to give, if that makes sense. Sure. We stand on the shoulders of giants. You know, at lunchtime, I was listening to the board of Schaefer talking about the giants of our faith, recent giants. Walkie, who used to be at Dallas, Johnson, Pentecost, just name them. And these were guys that we trusted who spent time in the text. And the reason reason why we read them as pastors, because we recognize that these guys spent time in the text. And as pastors, all of us recognize one thing that we don't have enough of is what? Time. We like to be able to spend 40 hours in the text. And sometimes we go into the week saying, I'm going to study hard this week. Until the phone rings. And that person decided to die. You know, it just doesn't come at the convenient time. All right. So we we have these commentaries that say that helped us understand. Plus, we're always testing ourselves. Because if I come up with an idea, I want to make sure that I'm not the only one saying this idea. Because, you know, my my uh, professors told me, Mark, if you come up with an original idea, throw it away. You know, let's, let's test this animal, right? So we've used commentaries to help us not go too far afield. But now what I think is happening is there's so much scholarship and there's so much accessibility to scholarship and scholars themselves to, to distance themselves from the field 
have to be new and cutting edge as one. So we have to write something new. I mean, think about anybody's a PhD student. David is. I heard one over here. We just got accepted to Calvary. You know, you guys have to come up with something new to publish for a dissertation. That's tough. That's tough work. But that's part of scholarship to move it forward. So some of it's academic that's driving it. Some of it is, I think, sometimes we're lazy to look in the text ourselves. Because what I'm asking you to do is not many commentaries do this. Zondervan is just putting out one now, I think it's by Daniel Block on Jonah, that's looking at the rhetorical side of the book. And I think it's one of the best commentaries out there. It's only this thick. But he tells you how the author puts together his story in Jonah. And I think it's excellent. Uh, I think it's, was it Daniel Block? It's the Zondervan, it's a newer uh, Zondervan um, commentary. I lost it, I have to look it up. Sir, uh, given that all commentaries have baggage, uh, what simple two or three metrics might we apply when we look at each one that might help us from being led to slaughter? I'll probably give you just one. Read the text. Read the biblical text. That's all they're doing is reading the biblical text. But I think we do get lazy. We don't want to work hard at the reading. We want to read it. We want to get ready. We want to preach it. We want to move on to something else. We have to stay in the text. One of my professors, we were in class, and somebody, one of the students, was berating liberal scholarship. Like, why are we even reading these texts? And I can understand this some part of that is being true. However, what my professor said has always stayed with me. He said, yes, they get it wrong, but what they do do is they stay in the text. I mean, look at some of these schools, Baylor, Duke. They have a professor like me. They let him teach one class, and all the rest of the time, they're in the text. One of the best commentaries on the Song of Songs is by a woman Cheryl Exum. And she's good because she looks at the text. Feminist, and I have to cut through the feminism. But she spent so much time in the text that I have to read her. And I don't have the same time to spend in the text as she does. I mean, give Robbie 40 hours a week where all he has to do is spend time in his text. Nothing else. He can produce a good, good commentary. And then you follow him because you trust him. And hopefully he doesn't go off the rail. <laughs> because it's, any one of us is capable. No one is immune for various reasons. Any other questions? Anybody got any other questions? We got all, every, everything solved. Yeah, what, uh, what about study Bibles? Um, 
what, are, what in your opinion, I have a whole lot of study Bibles, but well, I'm not a pastor, but uh, what do you think about study Bibles? Study Bibles are a good place to start, but again, whenever I read any book, I always have my Bible in the other hand. And you have to say, does this match with what the text is saying? And I think sometimes if, you know, for the non-pastor, we look at the study Bible and we read our Bible and we say, that doesn't work. But we're saying, I must be wrong. Why would you say that? Because you don't have the credentials and you don't have confidence. Just because it's written doesn't mean it's right. So we have to test that. So I have no problem reading anything you like. Just always come back to the text. I mean, if someone says, hey, we found, and this is what happened, I believe, with Longman and Walkie, the Genome Project came out. And the Genome Project came out and said that we've gotten down, based on our gene study, down to the top 10,000 first individuals. So they took science and said, okay, we can go back to the first 10,000, but we can't go back. So Longman says, okay, God saw that 10,000 and he picked two of them to become Adam and Eve. I mean, I wish he'd give me a brighter argument. Because in Genesis 1 and 2, it says God created. But if you're saying because he wrote, because he's a scholar, you're going to follow him and give up the word of God. I'm sorry, I'm going to stay with Jesus because he said Adam and Eve. So again, nothing wrong with reading everybody. And even when you get to, uh, we were just talking about the new covenant. How is the church a beneficiary of the new covenant? And I could probably ask for hands and we could get three or four different positions. And that's something we haven't solved yet. And that's okay. At least we're talking about that. And that's helpful. I have one more. Yeah, in common conversation with lay people when we're dealing with these kinds of discussions on genre, one of the things that I ran into a lot in undergrad and then recently as an adult is um, how do you describe, or how do you argue against someone that says, oh, well, that's you know the, the Gilgamesh epic and the, it's, I know framework deals with a lot of this stuff, but we're dealing with a lot of people that are saying, oh, well, the, the genre you're dealing with is really a reflection of this other pagan genre over here that the Bible is just stealing and then taking, and therefore what you say it means isn't what it means. I, was, I heard you said we don't have to defend what, what no, that's it says, a, that's a legitimate but how do question. we understand if we're going to talk about genre, we're going to talk about context, all this stuff, how do we say that this is unique to the Bible? Sure. What I would do is I'd take them to the railroad tracks. No, it's not what you think. <laughs> I want you to take them to a railroad tracks that are empty, and I want you to look at those two railroad tracks and ask them the one question, which way did the train go by just looking at the tracks? He'll say, I don't know. You're right, you don't know. What if the Bible didn't borrow from Gilgamesh? What happens if Gilgamesh really borrowed from the oral history of the scriptures? See, we almost give that up too quickly because we go by date of writing, but there had to be an oral history. This text was being spoken about. The stories were being shared. Why was Enosh walking with God? Because he heard the stories. Even before Moses wrote them down. 
And just because they're a genre doesn't make them fantasy. And that's the argument. Like Jonah. Jonah must be fantasy. Why? Well, it just must be. Because we've never heard of somebody being swallowed by a fish. And now we go looking for examples of someone being swallowed by a fish. Which just so happened, happened this weekend, by the way. Some guy was caught in the whale's, whale's mouth. He was out there with photography and got caught by a baleen whale. No, it let him go. So I was saying, shucks, if he could only last three days. We've had... <laughs> Would have been much better for the book of Jonah. See, but we don't have to. And we can go into arguments like, look at the difference between the parables in the New Testament and the Old Testament narratives. They're more specific in the Old Testament. We have names. Jonah. We have name places. Job. But right now, Job, Adam and Eve, even Esther are all on the chopping box for reliability, historicity of those characters. And Job bothers me the most. Because if we lose Job, then we lose the ability to understand a man suffering with God. Thanks a lot, Mark. Um, How come when people go back to try to find the original humans, they never deal with the descendants of Noah? They always just skip past those eight and they, they go back and... That eviscerates their argument to, to, to some degree. You know, I'd also add, you know, what his point, be in the text, but the other thing that's interesting is know the author. Because he, you mentioned Daniel Block. Daniel Block did a great commentary on Judges in the New American Commentary series, but there's not a shred of prophecy in Judges. But you go to his commentary in Ezekiel, and it's horrible because he's Amil, and all of his horrible covenant presuppositions all hang out there so it's just just absolute non-literal and all these other things and then you go to what he, probably what he does with with Jonah and that no prophecy there so that's going to be uh, something different so that helps to know where these guys are coming from and what their proclivities are and things of that nature where the minefields are okay it is 4 30 we're going to take our dinner break we're going to cut things off we'll resume tonight be here by before 7 30 uh, well, we got a great crowd here this week. We, I counted this morning. We got, uh, over 140, 150 people here. So this is just a tremendous, uh, turnout, tremendous attendance. And tonight we usually have more people even at night. So, uh, we should be filled up completely tonight. So that'd be great. There are different restaurants to go to. You can go back, take a nap, whatever you want to do. And, uh, we'll see you all back here, uh, by 7.30. Let me close in prayer. Father, thanks for this time together. We thank you for what we're learning, for the way it's making us think and reflect upon your word, perhaps in some new ways, that we may uh, not just get, get sucked into sort of a, uh, a standard boredom type, board, board type of way of looking at your scripture, same old, same old, but, but that it will make it a little fresh to us as we examine what you've communicated to us. Uh, Father, we pray you'd keep us uh, safe and return back to tonight at 7.30, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.